You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, we want to remind everyone that the Bellator Christie podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. We do encourage you to go to the website, and while you're there, uh, be sure to hit subscribe and enter your email address, and you'll receive all the articles and links to the podcast directly in your email account. So we encourage you to do that. If you have any uh, articles or podcasts that you enjoy or that thoroughly bless your heart, we just encourage you to uh, pass them on, let people know about the the ministry we have here, and we would greatly appreciate that. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by uh, iTunes, also on uh, the TuneIn Radio app, as well as Stitcher. Uh, so go there if you have any of those uh, podcatchers, and hit subscribe, and you'll also receive the podcast as well. Uh, biblical inerrancy is a belief that stems from a high view of Scripture. Throughout the history of the church, it is seen that the acceptance or rejection of uh, Christian orthodoxy greatly complements or depends upon a person's view of Scripture. But is biblical inerrancy still worth holding in an age of skepticism and scientific inquiry? We have a fantastic guest with us today, and we are, I've been excited about this all week long. We have Dr. Phil Fernandez, uh, who resides in Bremerton, Washington, but is originally from Newark, New Jersey. He holds a Ph.D. in philosophy of religion from Greenwich University, a Master of Arts in religion from Liberty University, a Bachelor of, Bachelor of Theology from Columbia Evangelical Seminary. He's written several books, uh, including Contend Earnestly for the Faith, uh, co-authored the book Hijacking the Historical Jesus with Kyle Larson, uh, God, Government, and the Road to Tyranny, The God Who Sits Enthroned, Evidence for God's Existence, and also is an associate editor 
of the book Vital Issues in the Inerrancy Debate. He has lectured and debated at some of the most prestigious universities in the nation, including Princeton, UNC Chapel Hill, and the University of Washington. He's also a former Marine, a former boxer, and also uh, a former police officer as well. Uh, I've always loved watching our guest debate uh, because he not only uh, can uh, take out people with uh, his logic and arguments, but being a power lifter, a weight lifter, I really love that because I'm a weightlifter myself. He can also take out people physically too. So we want to welcome with us Dr. Phil Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast well, today. It's, yeah, it's great to great to be here with you. Um, just want one disclaimer, just remind everybody I'm getting pretty old, so I'm not <laughs> not quite as tough as I used to be, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, I guarantee you, you you, you could uh, you could definitely take me out, no problem. I can assure you of that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just take your word for it. So you won't have to <laughs> won't have to throw down. That'll be a good thing. <laughs> well, Doctor Fernandez, if you would uh, tell us about how you came to faith in Christ. Yeah, I was uh, I was pretty content doing my own thing uh, back in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, was an amateur boxer. Wasn't getting anywhere. There's a lot of politics in New Jersey boxing. And if you're not fighting for one of the bigger gyms, um, you know, you, it's it's difficult to uh, really advance. If you don't knock out a fighter from a bigger gym, they, they're going to get the division. Uh, they're going to get the decision. And and so I was having a lot of bad luck in that. And I was not, was not saved. I was raised Roman Catholic, but didn't, didn't even believe in that. And... Uh, so, you know, after I graduated high school, all my buddies were getting football scholarships. Well, they don't give scholarships for boxing. So, uh, you know, so I was mopping floors and trying to continue to box. Uh, and, uh, you know, things just really weren't working out well. And so I was 20 years old, uh, lame jobs. And so a light heavyweight from the gym that I boxed at uh, back in Jersey, the Caldwell PAL, Police Athletic League, talked me into joining the Marine Corps with him on the buddy system. And I figured, well, I need a job. I want out of Jersey. The Marine Corps pay my way. I don't want to be a Marine, but at least uh, Rob Tucker will be with, with me. We'll be on the buddy system. Well, I went to, uh, showed up to take the oath, and he didn't show. And so they flew me out to Paris Island for boot camp with uh, in South Carolina with, uh, you know, five total strangers. So I just figured, well... Looks like I just threw away three years of my life. It was a three-year enlistment, but, you know, so be it. But well, then God used the Marine Corps to uh, to move me towards him. It took me out of my comfort zone in uh, New Jersey. Uh, I, uh, you know, we had hostages in, in Iran at the time that I went in, and I wasn't patriotic, but I just thought, you know, I'll be fighting, you know, and I was going in the infantry and all. But they, uh, Ronald Reagan got elected while I was in boot camp, so uh, I had told Khomeini he was coughing up the hostages by the time I got out of boot camp. And so instead of uh, a real exciting time in the Marine Corps, you know, I'm, I'm glad now, looking back, I don't want to, I'm glad, you know, I, I never had to kill a man. But, uh, uh, you know, it was real, I got boring duty guarding nuclear weapons in, in Washington State. And, uh, and so I was almost having a nervous breakdown because life was so slow compared to the way it was in New Jersey. And so it really wasn't a search for truth. For me, it was a search for meaning. And 
I tried one thing, I tried another thing, and then eventually uh, I started going back to Catholic Mass. And then a lady invited, the Marines, a middle-aged lady invited the Marines that were with me to uh, uh, her house for a home-cooked meal. And we went over there, and she knew we were we were kind of rough around the edges. We were all from New York and New Jersey and Boston. And uh, and so she had a friend that was an ex-convict, and, and she told me that he was coming over, and and he talked with us about the gospel message, you know, and and then uh, and I was already reading Hal Lindsey books at this time. I was really looking for answers, and so I was kind of convinced that Jesus was coming back. I wanted to be on his side, but I I thought it was still thought it was salvation by the works. Well, he invited me to a prayer meeting at that prayer meeting two days two days later, Tuesday night prayer meeting. I was confronted with the gospel message, and then I you know, trusted in Jesus for salvation. So I was back in 1981, so. And uh, never since then, all I've really wanted to do is just, you know, study the Word and uh, and uh, defend the faith and share the Gospel and teach others. And uh, so, but, you know, after getting out of Marine Corps, it took 10 years of of studying and law enforcement before I could go full-time in the, uh, in the ministry, which was in uh, 1994. And uh, and after five years of full time in the ministry, ninety four to ninety nine, then I got the offer to teach Bible and apologetics at uh, Christian High School, which was then Kings West. Now it's Cross Point, so that's in Bremerton, Washington. So so that's what I do now. I I teach full time, and I uh, at a Christian High School, and then I uh, pastor my church, Trinity Bible Fellowship. I started that in nineteen eighty eight with five people. We still we run about 80, 90 people on a good Sunday, and uh, so That's we're a small right. church and all, and uh, so I'm bivocational right now, and then I do a little bit of teaching for a small Bible college that started in the area, Shepherd's Bible College, and uh, and then do my you know debates and apologetic lectures on the side when I can when I can squeeze it in. So, wow, well I tell you, I tell you brother, you have uh, made a great impact. Uh, on several different people uh, due to your works and due to uh, your ministry. So we want to thank you for, for the work that you do for Christ because uh, it, it, uh, it does a lot of good in this world today. And so Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. And I've been one who's, been a, who's benefited from uh, listening to, uh, uh, to, your, to your podcast through sermon audios, through your teachings, and also uh, to... Uh, um, you know some of your lectures and things of things of that nature. So you do an excellent job. You really do. Now, as we talk about uh, biblical inerrancy, uh, if you would please explain the difference between the three eyes of Scripture. Uh, a lot of times people get confused over this. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture as opposed to the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah, the uh, the. Inspiration of Scripture, it, it literally means God breathed in the Greek, and uh, and so it just means that uh, God inspired or guided human authors, without taking away their vocabulary and their uh, uh, personalities, that God guided human authors to record His Word, and He He guided them to record it without error, right. so that uh, in the original manuscripts. Uh, which we no longer have, by the way, um, uh, the Bible is totally uh, without error. And so that's, uh, 
that's inspiration. God guided human authors to record his word without error and without that without error part, that's the that's the uh inerrancy part. And uh, and that means that when the when the Bible speaks, even though it's not technically a science book or a history book, um, when it speaks on any topic, it just it doesn't have to be talking about salvation or spiritual issues or moral issues. Even when it speaks on historical uh, issues and scientific issues, it speaks correctly because it's the Word of God and God cannot err. Absolutely. It's now, a- now, yeah, now, the... Uh, the other word there um, that you used, infallibility, is kind of a tricky word because technically infallibility should mean, should have more weight uh, than inerrancy because inerrancy means that the Bible has no errors in the originals. Um, uh, but when you talk about infallibility, it means the Bible is incapable of making errors because it's God's Word. <clears throat> so it should hold more weight. Unfortunately, a lot of scholars who denied inerrancy called their view, view infallibility, and what they meant was the Bible's infallible when it speaks on religion or morality, but it could make mistakes uh, in areas of science or history, it's kind of the partial theory uh, of inerrancy. And so that word has been watered down. I don't have a problem with the word. I just uh, want to know what the person means, the person who's using that term, uh, infallibility, what they mean by it. So, Right. So there are many. I noticed that you co-authored the book Vital Issues, or excuse me, it was an associate editor of the book for Vital Issues and the Inerrancy Debate. Uh, what what are some of the main um, views pertaining to inerrancy, and uh, what is the best way for the Christians? So we're kind of combining two questions here. Uh, what are what are the major views pertaining to inerrancy, and what is really the best view that the Christian should hold? Okay, well, first I mentioned everybody agrees that um, the inerrancy is in the original manuscripts, and we don't have the original manuscripts. We got probably about twenty-four thousand manuscript copies, and the number's probably growing at this point. And when you compare these copies, you can figure out with about as high of a degree of certainty as possible. Because you know, textual criticism is not an exact science, but when you've got so many reliable manuscripts, it comes as close to an exact science as you can get. So, like Bruce Metzger out of Princeton would argue that we should have. You know, the manuscripts are in 99.5% agreement. And what he means is the only difference really is like the New American Standard will bracket out a few passages, whereas the New King James Version, using a different family of manuscripts, will leave those passages in the text. And so it depends on whether somebody's going to favor the majority of the majority text or if somebody's going to favor some of the older manuscripts that we're finding, which often disagree with each other. The vast majority of New Testament scholars today hold to the uh, the oldest manuscripts that we find, um, but I um, I haven't been convinced. I think the majority of the manuscripts. So I like the New King James Version, that was pretty much based on the majority text. And I I do think we need uh, we evangelicals should understand that it logically follows that if God is going to give us an inerrant 
word in the original manuscripts, I do think that we need a, a doctrine of preservation of manuscripts <clears throat> where um, he's going to see to it that we always have good copies available to availability to good copies to where we can reproduce the original. And uh, I think too often we treat the Bible just like any other book, and um, and it's really killing evangelicalism in a, in a lot of areas right now. Now that book, Vital Issues, is addressing uh, some of the things that are coming out. Some of some of my friends and colleagues, some of the world's leading Christian apologists, are now watering down. They still hold, claim to hold to inerrancy, but they're watering down what they mean by it. And, uh, and so that's where the book Vital Issues in the Inerrancy Debate, that's what we're dealing with. It's kind of a neo-evangelical view, and it's pretty much taken over evangelical academia. So unfortunately, I think we're going to be left with a... Uh, uh, I think we're going to be left with a back-to-the-Bible movement um, from lay evangelicals, intelligent lay evangelicals, uh, and uh, so it's really, really sad. But at this particular point, there are some evangelical scholars, many of whom are apologists, um, who accept way too much um, from uh, uh, the higher critics of the uh, New Testament, many of whom don't even believe. And, um, and so now they're starting to classify the New Testament as Greco-Roman biography, and since the Greeks and the Romans can dress up the birth or the death of a king with metaphorical miracles, little poetic devices, and, and not really expect their readers to believe, literally, that these miracles occurred, they're starting to apply that to the Gospels. Now, they'll use some higher critic principles to still argue for the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection, and, um, and each of these guys that's doing this is only really throwing out three or four miracles, some throw out a few more. But if you put 20 of these guys together, and it's like a who's who in New evangelical New Testament scholarship and a who's who in apologetics, you put 20 of these guys, and like I said, a lot of these guys are my buddies, you put 20 of them in a room and you add up the different miracles they're denying, and, you know, you could lose an awful lot of gospel miracles. And so my problem isn't that I disagree with you know, their interpretation on this passage or that passage, my my problem is that they use a whole different hermeneutical grid, a whole different way to interpret the scriptures. And that's why I think uh, I think we need a strong doctrine of illumination as well, mm. where the Holy Spirit enlightens the minds and hearts of believers to understand his truth. And so I don't think we should go to unsaved scholars and... Uh, play some of the games they're playing. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I love taking, you know, taking what liberal New Testament critics will give me and then building, like Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona do, a minimal facts case for the resurrection. At the same time, we cannot, you know, embrace their kind of minimal facts thinking towards New Testament scholarship. If we really hold to inerrancy, we believe the the entire Bible and its original is without error, and so we're not looking for to to explain away miracles. But but these neo evangelicals, some of them will deny Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Some will deny that Job was historical. Some will deny 
that uh, wise men really visited Jesus. They just dressed up the story of the shepherds. Some of them will deny that uh, saints rose from the dead when Jesus was nailed on the, the cross. Uh, some of them will deny that the soldiers fell on their backs when uh, when Jesus was about to be arrested. Uh, some of them will deny that Jesus was crucified on the Passover day, even though John said it. That's just a metaphorical device. Um, they reject uh, two cleansings of the temple. John just purposely put it out of order and uh, put it at the beginning, but it really belongs at the end. Um, they'll take the prostitute who cleansed, uh, who uh, anointed Jesus' feet and confuse her with Lazarus's uh, sister who anointed Jesus' feet, and there's no evidence that she was a prostitute, but they'll say that, well, maybe these guys, you know, misunderstood the story and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, we're, we're supposed to hold to inerrancy. Right. And so this is the kind of stuff that's going on right now, and it's being taught at pretty much most of our seminaries. It's been taught at some seminaries for the past 20 to 30 years. And so there's going to be a tremendous weakening, weakening of the, uh, uh, the uh, bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, from a lot of our future pastors who were being trained by these guys. And a lot of these guys got this because they went to Europe and were trained under European scholars. And European evangelicalism is very much different from American evangelicalism. And now American evangelicalism is starting to look like European evangelicalism. You see, Dr. Fernandez, this this is, you know, a, a buddy of mine, I, uh, Jason Klein and I, we in, and uh, I don't think he'd mind me mentioning his name, he and I have had a lot of discussions about this very issue uh, through through the Facebook Messenger and through phone calls and whatnot. And you know, I'm I'm a person who had great doubts in the late '90s and actually left the ministry and even left the faith for a, a period of time uh, because of the Jesus Seminar and uh, yeah. the claims they make in saying that uh, we can't really know what the sayings of Jesus were in the, in the New Testament. And it seems to mm -hmm. me that this is the same thing except going at it about uh, looking at the miracles of Jesus. And and I'm with you. I, I'm greatly concerned by this. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's really sad, too, because the problem is not, that, you know... Like, on the Internet, there's this list of kind of the 100 most well-known apologists in the English-speaking world. And uh, now, I don't know why, but about 15 of the guys are dead. So so it's really the list of the top 85. Out of those 85 guys, you'd be lucky if, if, if 10 to 15 of those guys are actually doing this and watering down inerrancy. Problem is, you only have five or six guys, kind of the guys that worked on that book, Vital Issues in the Inerrancy Debate, with me, Dr. Norman Geisler, and David Farnell, uh, Bill Roach, uh, uh, Gil Holden at a Veritas Seminary, and myself. You know, uh, Richard Howell poses this from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's really, really good on this as well. But there's very few of us who have spoken out against it. And so what we end up with is that the vast majority of these top 85 apologists are younger apologists and uh, I would argue they view these you know 15 guys or so that are doing this that are watering down an emergency they view them as rock stars and they don't want to rock the boat so if I'm giving a lecture against this you know I'll see guys who run 
you know, running circles with, uh, you know, Robbie Zacharias and J.P. Moreland. And, I mean, big apologist, but they'll attend my talk when I refute this stuff, but they'll never argue with me on the issue. So I think deep down inside they know that this is not the right direction to go, but it's kind of, it's almost like Christian apologetics has gotten all about networking. And um, and we got to be real careful with it. Now, having said that, one of the leaders in this movement has contacted me recently, and I don't really feel led to mention his name right now. We're friends; we love each other and everything. And but um, but does want to sit down and talk. And uh, and I asked if we could, you know, record this and put it out, you know, on YouTube. And and he said he'd be good with that. So. Hopefully within the next six months or so, uh, I'll sit down with, you know, one of the leaders in this movement. And uh, I don't want, you know, I want unity, but I want unity with clarity. Right, And um, if we want to, you know, if the leaders turn evangelicalism into mere Christianity, you know, only the essentials you have to believe to be saved, and they just say you have to have a high view of the scriptures, but... They don't uh, demand that you hold to inerrancy. Um, there's nothing wrong with starting a movement like that, but I want clarity. I want to know who's on what side. I don't want guys uh, that are just ignoring, uh, you know, when Francis Schaefer and R.C. Sproul and Norman Geisler and J.I. Packer and Carl Henry, when these guys all got together for the International uh, Council on Biblical Inerrancy and they drew up the Chicago Statement clearly says there that you cannot, you know, classify uh, the the Bible as some kind of genre, which then enables you to start throwing out historical miracles and explaining them as metaphors. And that's exactly what's being done right now. So, uh, um, but, uh, so I'm hoping that there's going to be unity, but I, I think at this particular point that the Evangelical Theological Society is fully on board with this neo-evangelical thinking. So if the neo-evangelicals become the evangelicals, then I want it to be known that I, like, you know, Norm Geisler and Joe Holden, Bill Roach, David Farnell, well, then I'm a conservative evangelical, meaning I still believe what... Uh, with our forefathers, you know, Francis Schaeffer and those guys. I, and I, and I don't believe that they invented their doctrine on inerrancy. They just were brilliant minds who came together and found out, well, this is what the church, the Christian church, has taught about uh, inerrancy uh, throughout the centuries from its start. And um, so uh, I'm on the board with the International Society of Christian Apologetics, and I do think that that's the new... If there is a new Back to the Bible movement in academia, that's it. So I would encourage as many people who hold to a real high view of inerrancy uh, to join it, either as student members or full members. And uh, But it's the International Society of Christian Apologetics. We'll be meeting in, in March in Texas. We have our annual meetings. And um, uh, because I think that's going to be um, the, uh, the true evangelicals in academia and um, and so if the neo-evangelicals fully take over the evangelical movement and, and they end up winning the title evangelical 
then uh, I think the ISCA will be, you know, real quick to say, well, we're we're conservative evangelicals. We actually, you know, we, we consider those evangelicals neo-evangelicals, a newer form of evangelicalism, because they've watered down what inerrancy means. So, and it, by the way, this is like the worst possible time for this to happen in the evangelical church, that the guys who are training our future pastors are doing this because... Uh, with everything that's going on in the world, if, if there's ever a time that we should not water down the Bible, this is it. I mean, there yeah, never yeah. is a good time to do that. But this is like the worst time to do it. And, um, you know, things are uh, getting really crazy in the world and in America. And we need, uh, you know, defenders of God's truth, not uh, people that are going to start explaining things away. Exactly. And, and you know, it's, well, this kind of leads us to the question, you know, um, Theologically, and I'm going to combine these two questions together. Theologically, why is uh, inerrancy important to a person's uh, not only theology but also their apologetic? But and so in 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 combination with that question, what dangers yeah. emerge from a weak or non-existent view of inerrancy? Okay, yeah. Let me take the first one first. Uh, the um no, no, no. What was the first one again? Uh, uh, theologically and apologetically, how, how, why is it important to hold? Uh, oh a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it, first off, it's important to hold to inerrancy because if we're going to believe the Bible, we got to believe what the Bible says about the Bible, and the Bible very clearly teaches um, that God's word is, is totally true. And you know, I don't know if we have time to look at all the verses and all, but. Uh, you know, but like Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield of those who take refuge in him. And um, so, you know, Jesus says, uh, thy word is truth in John chapter 17. And um, and so we, we just have to understand that if the Bible is God's word, and God cannot lie, he is truth, then the Bible, then God's word must be totally true, totally without error. And so this is, that's number one, is it's clearly taught in the scripture. So if we're going to be defenders of the Bible, we cannot disagree with the Bible. So the Bible teaches inerrancy. That's number one. Number two, um, if we water down what we mean by inerrancy just so that we can continue to, um, you know, publish uh, works for evangelical publishing houses or things of that sort, um, that's, you know, that's that's really not the way we should approach it. That's where I want clarity. I want people really to come out and say exactly what it is that they do. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean when I'm witnessing to somebody that I'm going to defend that the Bible is God's word unless that issue comes up. Uh, I'm usually going to basically defend that there is absolute truth, that a personal God who can perform miracles exists, and that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. If I can make a strong case for those three, and and then lead a guy to Christ, then we can talk about inerrancy. Hmm. So I'm not saying because uh, an apologist needs to believe in inerrancy to be truly evangelical that they should be out there. You know, I, in fact, I'll be honest with you. I don't even I don't even uh, spend much time arguing with atheists on the internet about Bible contradictions. Because, you know, God hasn't illuminated their minds. They can't even understand the Word. So they're going to just pull things out of context. And every 
even if they accepted your resolution of what looks appeared to be contradictions, they're still going to bring up another one, and they're just going to keep going on and on forever. So, so I just get you know to the issue: of, Does God exist? And uh, and who is Jesus? Jesus claimed to be God and proved it by rising from the dead. Um, now, having said that, though, when an evangelical apologist denies or waters down inerrancy, then uh, the students that he teaches, he's going to you know pass that on to them, and they might have a, their own little back to the Bible movement and oppose what he's saying. But more times than not, they become like their teacher. And uh, you know, Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they're going to both fall into a ditch. And uh, and so when they become like their teacher, um, there's a good chance that if, you know, if my professor gave up on three or four gospel miracles, I might give up on five or six. Right. And then his disciple might give up on eight or nine. And, you know, before long, you got a guy who's, you know, has denies the deity of Christ. You know, I talked to a liberal Episcopalian minister, and I asked him if he believed in the resurrection, and he said... He said, no, I think that Jesus just rose in our hearts, you know, just, just a metaphor. And um, he said, but I won't give up on the divinity of Christ. And I said, well, uh, but I'm sure you redefine it anyway. And it turned out that he believed the divinity of Christ was just having the Christ consciousness, the God consciousness within you. And Jesus exercised it better than us, but we're just like him. And so it's a tremendous emotion of Jesus there. So, so basically... When we claim to be evangelical, we're claiming to be Bible-believing Christians, and that entails more than just the right answer to what must I do to be saved, but it also contains several other very key doctrines. And um, and so I'm, I'm not even denying that, that these guys, my friends that are doing this, are saved, but they're not really evangelicals based on the uh, Chicago Statement and, you know, Evangelical Theological Society was founded, I believe, in 1948, and it uh, was, I think, around 1978 or so when the Evangelical Theological Society was having enough trouble to where they said, okay, we define inerrancy based on the Chicago Statement. And uh, so if these neo-evangelicals are going to take over the evangelical movement, they're going to have to trash the Chicago Statement, and those evangelicals who don't want to trash it are, are going to be the, the new group of evangelicals or the conservative evangelicals. So it's, uh, but I, I do think that each, there is a kind of a second law of thermodynamics, a law of energy deterioration among Bible teaching, <laughs> to where until you get repentance and revival, each student tends to be a little bit more liberal than, right. than his professors. And, um, uh, so I'm hoping, you know, I think we need a reformation every generation. And uh, um, But uh, I do think we're going to see young men taking the pulpits of our churches, and then they're going to be talking about, well, this miracle never really happened. It's just a poetic device. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start scratching our heads. And then the temptation is going to be, well, maybe maybe when the Bible condemns homosexuality, maybe it really doesn't mean that either. You know, so, I mean, it, it, it's uh, there can be a slippery slope there. And uh, now, if I disagree with the guys who are doing this because of what it might lead to, that's this that's the slippery slope fallacy. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just saying, no, if they do this today, what are their disciples going to do 40 years from now? 
you know, that's just that's just looking at history and saying, hey, that's just the way things go. That's just the way things deteriorate. Like Francis Schaeffer saying that if we legalize abortion, eventually it's going to lead to infanticide and euthanasia. But that wasn't why he opposed abortion. It wasn't what it was leading to. He opposed abortion because it was wrong in itself. So that's why it wasn't a slippery slope fallacy there either. Well, you know, you're right. And to me, it seems like, you know, just exactly as you said, that if you start taking some miracles out, then eventually, you know, why not take more? But it reminds me of what uh, Dr. Frank Turek said. I, I never will forget mm-hmm. a lecture where he asked everyone in attendance, what's the greatest miracle of all? And I was inclined, like most people, to say, well, the resurrection of Christ. But he said, no. He said, the greatest resurrection of all is found in Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth. And if God did mm-hmm. that, then every other miracle is at least possible. And it, and to yep. me, I don't understand even the reasoning behind taking out any of the miracles that's purported in the Bible. Yeah. I mean, to me, it makes yeah, no sense. I think Dr. Geiser was hitting the nail on the head. He he thinks that it's um, we have some evangelical apologists who are have reached a point where they're uh, more excited about gaining academic res- you know respect from their academic peers than they are in pleasing God sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know and this happens in our seminaries too. You know if you have a PhD degree in philosophy from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and you have published numerous works proving that you're a true, solid evangelical. But the other guy who's applying for the philosophy position has a PhD from uh, in philosophy from Princeton, or from Oxford or Cambridge, or from Harvard or Yale. As long as he signs that statement of faith, even if he's put nothing in print arguing the evangelical position, He's probably going to get the degree because that act, that institution gains more academic respect by having guys with PhD degrees from European schools or from uh, Ivy League schools. And what's happened in the process, though, is that American evangelicalism has begun to look more and more uh, like European evangelicalism. For instance, uh, it's not uncommon for European evangelicals to be theistic evolutionists to deny a literal Adam and Eve, um, to believe in the, have a high view of the scriptures without believing in inerrancy. They're open to errors being in the Bible. Um, and then they usually deny eternal conscious torment and teach annihilation of the wicked. And now we're seeing all of these things uh, creeping into the quote unquote uh, uh, the halls of e- evangelical academia. And um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, that's rather unfortunate. So I do think we need a back-to-the-Bible movement. I think we've got to treat these guys with dignity and respect. And we can have unity in Christ and say, yeah, we're brothers who love the Lord, but I'm not the same kind of Christian as you are. Right. I'm a conservative evangelical that still believes in the robust uh, view of inerrancy that, you know, Francis Schaeffer and Geisler and Packer and Sproul and Carl Henry and Harold Linzel believed in the 1970s. And uh, and so I just want clarity is what I want so that people can know what we're getting into. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say don't send guys to their seminaries and their universities because they're, 
There's so many of them. <laughs> but what I would say is uh, we may have to give a list as we send our young men and our young ladies to become missionaries and the guys to become pastors. Um, as we send them to these universities and seminaries, we may have to give them a list of things to watch out for. Right. But watch out when they start redefining biblical miracles as uh, metaphors. You know, watch out if they if they uh, deny that um, um, you know that Jonah really existed. You know, and things of that sort. So. Well, and, and something I would say as one who is affected and influenced, because. When we talk about the Jesus Seminar, we're not talking about mm-hmm. really evangelicals in that sense. No. But, but nope. the the danger is yeah. And I would say too that Marcus Borg, the late Marcus Borg, uh, one of the key top three or four members of the Jesus Seminar. Um, he his view of the gospel miracles were basically that somewhat that they were pretty much writing mythology mm. and it was all metaphorical and things of that sort so you know to be a member of the evangelical theological society you have to believe in the doctrine of the trinity and then the inspiration and inerrancy of scriptures well marcus borg was honest enough not to call himself an inerrantist but if he claimed no i believe the bible is god's word without error i just believe all the miracles including the virgin birth and the resurrection are metaphors um, based on the reasoning of the neo-evangelicals, I don't see how they could say he wouldn't be an evangelical, except that he doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. He was more of a uh, process theologian in that area. He kind of believed uh, it was a panentheist, kind of the universe is God's body type of thing. So, uh, But I actually think that what we need to do is to come up with a conservative evangelicalism, which, like... Uh, the uh, intellectual fundamentalism of the early 20th century, uh, it just needs to, we need to spell out, you know, the six or seven key doctrines that we hold to and a robust doctrine of inerrancy. And if, and if guys don't want to sign a statement like that, they can always join the, you know, Evangelical Theological Society, which I think right now is, is really becoming more and more neo-evangelical. And, and by the way, I would recommend that young scholars join the International Society of Christian Apologetics, kind of the, the very small organization at this point, um, but that represents true conservative evangelicalism. But I would also recommend that they also join, and if they can afford to do so, and present papers at the Evangelical Theological Society so that we might influence them for the good. Um, but at the International Society of Christian Apologists, we've had to withhold, uh, you know, membership from uh, uh, from uh, one of my friends who, who denies eternal conscious torment, and and so uh, you know, there's got to be some in the American Church, especially in academia. There's got to be some body that you can go to and say, look, these guys are defending the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. They're not jumping on some new bandwagon by classifying the Gospels as Greco-Roman biography and then tossing out uh, some of the Gospel miracles by doing that. So, Well, you know, and, and two, I mean, speaking as one who was really influenced negatively 
by the Jesus Seminar, and, and partly because mm-hmm. there were no, no there were no voices to help me steer me along apologetically uh, mm-hmm. in the apologetic, you know, Christian apologetics. What I'm trying to say. In the end, especially if this gets incorporated with Christian apologetics, this could do much more harm than good. Yeah, it yeah. Would defeat the purpose yeah, of what it, we're trying to it, do. The, the big thing we're facing right now, and it's not in academic circles, but it's in a grassroots internet type thing, is the Jesus Smith hypothesis that Jesus never really existed, mm. or if he did exist, he was just a regular guy. But all the miraculous aspects were borrowed from pagan mythology, from Greek and Roman mythology. One of the strongest arguments against that is that the early church was Jewish, and they were very exclusive in their thought, and they were not influenced by uh, Greco-Roman thought forms. <laughs> That's right. But then, if we're going to start saying, but but they wrote the Gospels using Greco-Roman biography, then I think we're going to have to toss that argument out and then start saying, okay, well, then they were influenced by the Greeks. And the Well, where do, you, where do you draw the line now? And wow. uh, see, the thing is, Sue, is, I want an intelligent lay evangelical to be able to pick up the Gospel of John and read about a miracle and know whether it's a literal miracle or not just from reading the text. I don't want him to have to turn to some neo-evangelical scholar who has been trained in higher criticism and and uh, to tell him, you know, we, we don't have to, we don't need our own little community of infallible popes that we have to turn to these guys to find out, oh, wait a minute, this miracle here, the saints rising with Jesus on the cross, did that really happen? The Bible seems to indicate that it did, but wait, I got to talk to, I got to talk to guys, to the guys that are in the know, kind of a, a neo-Gnosticism, and, um, and I, I don't think we should get to that point. I think we've got to, you know, certainly people who dedicate their entire lives to studying the Word and become pastors and theology professors and stuff, we can learn a lot from them. But when it gets to the point where you can't tell the difference between a historical miracle and a metaphor um, because, it's, you know, your pay grade is too low and you have to appeal to these guys who are in the know that have studied so much with these higher critics um, to tell you whether it occurred or not, I think we're in very dangerous water at that point. Amen. Amen. Well, real quickly, we're running down on time. You know, concerning, and I know you, know you say you don't normally handle this with, with skeptics, but say uh, there are individuals who discuss the so-called contradictions of scriptures. Yeah. How do you handle that? Well, if you go to Gleason Archer's handbook on uh, Encyclopedia Bible Difficulties and then uh, Norman Geisler and Tom Howe's uh, um, uh, when critics, when critics ask or something like that, but those two books alone <clears throat> will probably answer, you know, eighty-five to ninety percent of the objections that have been raised. And um, and I think one of the big differences between me and my friend, who's who's really big into this neo-evangelicalism, is that he's restless with what appear to be contradictions. And uh, I'm not. Um, I mean, if I look at the scriptures, I can see, well, you know, we're talking about, what, 1% to 2% where we might think it might be a contradiction, and and then if we take a further look, we might find out how to reconcile it. We could come up, so all you have to do when, you know, when you're in law enforcement and you get, you know, two 
different reports. Like one time I had a report that, you know, one guy beat up the, the victim. Then I interviewed another witness. He said two guys beat up the victim. So I called the other guy back in, and I thought maybe he was the second guy. I said, I, said, I talked to another witness. He said two guys beat him up, not one. And this one witness said, well, there was a guy who was with him, but he only kicked the guy in the head once. The guy who really beat him up was the other guy. What? And so it was kind of like, now this guy was wearing Raider garb when, you know, wannabe gang members was the real cool thing to do. And, um, but the key was he was working off a different definition of what it constitutes to put a beating on somebody. And so sometimes we will hear something and we will think it's a contradiction until we research it, uh, it, uh, uh, more thoroughly. I think there's a guy named Holding. Uh, I can't. Uh, J.P. Holding, who has done. A, he's taken articles on the same event by like Time, Newsweek, New York Times, Seattle Times, stuff like that, and has pointed out all these contradictions. And then he's done further research and found found out how they all get resolved. And it's just because people have to be selective in what they report. And uh, if you and I were just sitting down looking at the same wall and we wrote down a description of the wall, it might sound like two totally different walls until somebody else sits down and looks at the same wall. So, oh, yeah, okay, so that painting is, uh, is also on the wall as well as the painting the other guy talked about and things of that sort. So whenever eyewitnesses give you information, um, they're going to have to be selective. And, so, and here's another thing, too. The present state of evangelical apologetics today, in debates, when when you're asked with the you know, especially by the Jesus Smithers, they'll say, "Well, you guys don't have any eyewitnesses. Nobody who was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry wrote anything." The common response now is, "Paul was an eyewitness." So all of a sudden, we could care less what the early church fathers said about Matthew being the author of the first gospel. We could care less that Mark got his gospel from Peter's eyewitness testimony. We could care less that uh, they believe the Apostle John wrote his gospel. Um, we could care less that Jude, James, and Peter were all eyewitnesses. So it's kind of, we've gotten to the point where we only take what liberal New Testament critics give us to the point where we're acting like the only eyewitness we know about right now in the New Testament who wrote was... Uh, was Paul. And uh, now, now, by the way, there are some evangelicals who only accept about seven of Paul's letters as authentic, and they believe the others are God's word, but they believe that they were written by a guy who just called himself Paul, but wasn't really Paul. He was just um, uh, from the Pauline school. So, I mean, we're getting to the point where everything that liberal critics have believed we're starting to embrace in academic circles and the evangelicalism, and that's that's really really sad. So, uh, but I uh, in my hijack and historical Jesus, I have a chapter on redating the New Testament books. I have a chapter that's based a lot on the work of David Farnell on the independence theory of the Gospels, where Matthew and Luke were not harvesting from Matthew's stuff. I mean, from Mark's stuff to write their Gospels, and. Um, and so I think you can argue for the traditional authors, the church, even earlier than the traditional dates. It's amazing how early we used to date the Gospels before uh, the advent of uh, evolutionary thought. 
and um, so uh, so it, it just it's just one of those deals where we're we're giving so much. I, I agree with taking what your opponent will give you to argue your case, but when you become when your views become identical to your opponent's views, you've lost Amen. at that point. And I think that's the direction we're heading. If if you can give up on this gospel miracle, that gospel miracle, how long before the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection are gone as well? Absolutely. And I'm with you. And I've I've been dogmatic in that regard. And because of uh, you know the evidence that that exists, the early church fathers in date you know in dating it or or presenting the case uh, for for the writers of the gospels. And you know I look at yeah. John and. I think it's clear internally and externally that John the Apostle wrote the fourth gospel. I don't. I mean, to me, yeah. there's no debate about that. But, but uh, yeah, if he didn't write, I don't know why he didn't ever mention John by name. Exactly. If he wasn't the disciple who rested his head on Jesus' shoulder. You know, why would he not mention the name of one of the inner three, Jesus' inner circle? There. Absolutely. Dr. Fernandez, thank you so much for joining us. This is a fantastic conversation. I hope maybe sometime we can get you back on. I know you're very busy, but we appreciate your time today. And, and uh, brother, I'm telling you what, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. And so uh, we want to encourage uh, everyone to check out the works by Dr. Phil Fernandez. Uh, now your website is the Institute of Biblical Defense. Is it dot, dot .com? Yeah, dot .com. Institute of Biblical Defense dot .com. When they get there, they should click on the sermon audio button because then that'll give them access to over 1,400 sermons, lectures, debates that I've done, both streaming audio and streaming video, and that's that's all free. And if they want to pick up some of my books, I just wrote the Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodologies. You know, just go do a search of my name, and it's Fernandez, it's F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-S. It ends in with an S, not with a Z. And uh, my books are all on Amazon.com, so if they wanted to uh, pick up some of those, that'd be fine as well. But, uh, yeah, we're just trying, to, just trying to do what you're doing, brother, just to get the word out there and help people to defend the faith. Amen. Amen. Well, th again, thank you so much for what you do and for, uh, for, for your work for the kingdom of God. We, you know, I, I know, uh, as I mentioned, that you agreed to come on the podcast, I was mentioning this on the website, and several people uh, were, were excited about this, to, you know, and, uh, and, and even stating, many of them stating that you were their favorite apologist. So, uh, again, oh, we appreciate. That's, a, that's an honor there. So we certainly appreciate your time. And again, hopefully, God willing, maybe we can get you back on the podcast real soon. Yeah, definitely. That'll be great. And the, the honor's all mine. God bless you, brother. Thank you, brother. For Dr. Phil Fernandez, this is Brian Chilton saying God bless. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights are reserved. The views expressed by guests on the podcast are of those expressing them and may not represent those of the host Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The theme played on the podcast is the song Epic and is produced royalty-free by Bensound Studios found at bensound.com. Visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe by entering your email to receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox absolutely free. This podcast can also be found on several podcatchers including iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We thank you for joining us today 
For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.